0: I'm Madeline Jane Albow. Welcome to Window Dressing, Glamour Girl Next Door, MGM to Playboy. This week, I will be discussing Sharon Tate, specifically her impact on culture in the late 1960s and beyond. The 1967 film, The Valley of the Dolls, will be the primary Tate film I cover this week. This is similar to last week's episode in that I will be heavily focused on one woman. Sharon's iconography starts with her beauty queen teenage years in Texas and ends in Beverly Hills' Benedict Canyon in August of 1969. She was only 26 years old. I'm going to try really hard to not go into detail about the horror that befell her, but I will go into how it affected her image and what the press did to her and by extension female victims of crime generally, but no crime scene descriptions here. I will likely do a Manson Girls episode at some point, as those women deserve some attention and focus, but not here. This is a Sharon Tate-only episode. If I haven't already made this clear, she's a very important figure to me personally, and my aim here is to grant her the reverence she deserves. Sharon grew up in Texas, and as I previously noted, was a beauty queen. She later moved to L.A. and began a career modeling and eventually landed a seven year contract at MGM, one of the last Studio System Star Trek contracts around. She was groomed for the big time with small time roles in Mr. Ed and other television shows of the time. She eventually had a small role in Don't Make Waves, which I mentioned last week was the impetus for Malibu Barbie. Her character's name was Malibu and she played a beautiful, but near mute surfer who is upset that her beefcake boy toy of a boyfriend won't have sex with her. It is a really bad movie and not on brand with the kind of suffering I can endure. It is a good example of the ways in which Hollywood was not only behind the current culture, but also made a joke of it. Regardless, Sharon's image is indelible in it and does have a quality that is worthwhile, at least of study. I will list Sharon's full acting credits in the show's description. While America was making surfing romps in Elvis films, French director Vadim was creating a harem of sex goddesses that eventually pulled talent from the United States. Catherine Deneuve, Brigitte Bardot, and our own Jane Fonda were all either wives of or in a relationship with this notorious Svengali director. Next week, I will talk more about Jane Fonda, her connection to Vadim and her way out of that world. Tate was America's version of a Vadim sex goddess, or at least that's how she was billed, sold, and eventually buried. The thing about Sharon was that she wasn't actually a sex goddess. There were no films that backed up that label. She was sort of that in her husband, Roman Polanski's film, The Fearless Vampire Slayer, but not in the way a Brigitte Bardot or a Deneuve was. Her role in don't make waves is definitely of an objectified woman, but that doesn't equal sex goddess. What Sharon was more than sexy was beautiful. I understand that people don't find this to be a particularly impressive talent or even a talent at all, but it is undeniably a power source. One that she owned, she had something that is the stuff of stars. If you attempt to break down what makes her breathtaking, you end up with an incomplete answer. Her beauty was beyond compare and it feels radiant to witness even now. This is why the whitewashing of her character, her person, her life by her murder is so disgusting because it's a theft of her power. People took what she had and similar to Marilyn Monroe are still using her image for their own narrative, profit and ends. Sharon Tate handed her killer the weapon was the headline for an October 1969 photoplay article written by Tony Hardwick. The thesis of the piece is that Sharon was asking for it because of her beauty, lack of talent, husband, lover, and the list goes on and on. Pre-discovery of the Manson family, Sharon was vilified. Post-discovery, she was transformed from a woman to a forever victim. She is most remembered for being murdered by the Manson family, or as Deborah Tate, Sharon's sister, says, Manson is most remembered for murdering Sharon. She was known, but was not yet a big star in her own right at the time of her death. People mostly referred to her as the wife of Roman Polanski, The thing said of Sharon that touches closest to the truth came from a friend of the family and my favorite cowboy, Yul Brenner. He said, and I quote, Sharon had a fragile incandescent quality that brought oxygen into the room, unquote. It is apt that the oxygen of an era disappeared with her death. Sharon was a victim of the time she lived in. The sexual revolution allowed her husband the freedom to fuck around on her, while she was expected to look the other way while fetching him a drink. A hallmark of the so-called sexual liberation was that women became communal property instead of the property of just one man. While on the set of The Fearless Vampire Killers where Roman and Sharon met, Roman photographed Sharon nude for Playboy, a kind of condoned pimping of his well-earned prize. The connection to Playboy is interesting, but nearly unavoidable in the 1960s as a celebrity, Playboy not only reflected the culture of the time, but was also wrapped up in creating it. The sexual revolution spawned the man in the red robe and his harem, just like it helped Manson create his harem of man-pleasing killers. I'm not trying to disparage the girls that they used to be or the women that they would become, just the pawns and playthings Manson made of them. Hefner seems like a better sort than Manson, but minus the murders, he may just have been the more successful one. Sharon's exploitation continued after her death. She was blamed, vilified, and exploited by nearly every publication. She was a witch, a whore, and ultimately, if not directly responsible for what happened to her, Jay Sebring, Abigail Folger, Wycheck Frikowski, Stephen Parent, and her own unborn child, at the very least, asking for it. By the time the satanic panic passed in the 1980s of my childhood, Sharon's image had shifted in the press from witchy whore to virginal angel. There has never been room for just her, as she was. This is always true for women and doubly true for beautiful women. You're not allowed to be anything but what men want from you or want to blame on you. When I was a little girl, I didn't know the details of exploitation and theft around a woman's power source. I just knew I loved Sharon Tate. I don't know if I was able to understand what had happened to her when I was a child, but I must have seen something about her on television because I was very much aware of her at a young age. Now I think she is emblematic of the type of violence, emotional, physical, and psychic, that women experience throughout the course of their lives. But then I thought she was my friend and the most beautiful woman I had ever seen. I rewatched The Valley of the Dolls ad infinitum throughout my life just for a glimpse of her. The film adaptation of The Valley of the Dolls is based on Jacqueline Suzanne's best-selling book of the same title published in 1966. William Travilla was the costume designer responsible for the enduring memory of the film. Travilla costumed Marilyn Monroe in The Seven-Year Itch and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Barbara Parkins is the hairdresser in this film, which is very significant, especially at this time in hair history. Ben Nye did the makeup. Raphael Breton and Walter M. Scott were the set decorators. The iconic opening song sung by Dionne Warwick was written by Dory Previn and arranged by Andre Previn, her husband. I'm going to do a full breakdown of the film. It is a long sort of winding movie, but I think the backdrop and the characters that aren't Sharon are important to understanding what her role was in the film. Ann Wells, played by Barbara Perkins, narrates throughout the two hour, three minute runtime of the Valley of the Dolls. Ann is a small town girl from an upper crust, New England family who wants to travel to New York to find herself. Upon her arrival, she checks into the Martha Washington Hotel for girls. This is an interesting time period because until 1965, it was illegal in New York City for a single woman to check into anything other than an all girls hotel without a man at her side, preferably one in an ownership role like a husband or father. Anne begins work as an entertainment lawyer's secretary and is eventually scouted as the new face of a cosmetic company. In the intervening months, she meets and falls in love with her boss's partner, Lyon Burke. Lyon leaves her flat to go find himself in Europe, and she moves on with said modeling career. Neely, a young up-and-coming singer played by Patty Duke, is in a play headlined by Helen Lawson, played by Susan Hayward, who does an excellent job as an Ethel Barrymore type in this film. Lawson is a client of Anne's boss, Mr. Bellamy, played by Robert H. Harris. While on an errand for Mr. Bellamy, Anne meets both Neely and Jennifer. Jennifer, Sharon Tate's character, is a showgirl in the same production. After being kicked to the curb by jealous Miss Lawson, Neely vows to make it on her own. She gets a gig singing in a telethon and from there gets a job as the opening act for young singer and general hunk, Tony Polar, played by Tony Scotty tony and jennifer meet and fall in love instantly but are forced to see each other in secret because tony's stage mother of a sister doesn't want him to marry it is later divulged that tony has huntington's disease and this is miriam's tony's sister played by lee grants reason for not wanting her brother to marry. But Jennifer and Tony do get married, and eventually the illness strikes Tony down and leaves a newly pregnant Jennifer without enough money and a fear of passing said disease along to her child. Jennifer is forced to work in French art films, aka porn, in order to make ends meet. She seeks out Neely's advice on where she can get an abortion. Meanwhile, Neely has risen to fame and is now faced with a grueling schedule which she accommodates with dolls, which is a youth for pills, Neely takes mostly the red ones, which are Dexedrine or Speed, but some other candy colors are in the mix as well. Lion Burke returns from London and starts working as Neely's agent. Lion and Anne reunite and live together in a rather drab Malibu estate. Neely ends up on a bender that lands her in a sanatorium on the insistence of Anne and Lion. Neely goes to the same institution where Jennifer's husband is, Tony. Jennifer, after a stint in France with an exploitive director, comes home to find out she has breast cancer. Faced with the reality of a mastectomy disfiguring her body and no way to support herself or her husband, she commits suicide. Neely, with the support of her friends, recovers and sets her sights on Lyon. She succeeds, but ends up alone and back on the dolls when Lyon walks out on her. He chases down Anne, who post her own suicide attempt, went back to her precious New England town. Anne refuses Lyon's hand in marriage and ends up becoming whole again in her upper crust New England. So obviously, Anne is obnoxious. She's a stuffy New England beauty granted protection by her money and family that Tate's character, Jennifer, doesn't have. Jennifer's beauty is superior, her talent equal, but she ends up making porn in France because she isn't a brunette from old money. I really struggle with Anne. She drives me crazy. There is one scene where she makes Lion go to some Harvard or Yale bar with a hearth fireplace and likely a ritual rape once a week. I hate her. Jennifer is relatable and lovable, but made quite invisible by her beauty and the torture porn price she has to pay for it. In Tate's first scene, her character Jennifer comes down the stairs of the dingy rehearsal space surrounded by less dazzling performers in leotards and tights. She wears a black leotard, kitten-heeled black pumps, and a magnificent headdress of jewel-encrusted platinum and bright blue ostrich feathers. The side pieces of her headdress dangle down over her ears like earrings. The feathers plume out of the top and drape generously down over her shoulders and back. She has to walk with outstretched arms to maintain balance as she descends her last step. The group jeers and laughs at her. The director covers his face with his hands so that all that is in his eyeline is her body. He says, and I quote, 600 bucks for a headdress and no one will see it. This is a rather garishly drawn depiction of a woman only valued for her body. It is hard to believe about Jennifer because beauty and body are not the same thing. The kind of beauty that Jennifer inhabits is in her face. It's in her eyes and it's in her hair. Even with extravagantly gorgeous headdress covering her hair is a mistake. You can't see Sharon Tate and by extension, you can't see Jennifer without seeing her blonde hair. When Tate was getting started, her agent would put her in small parts wearing a dark wig to give her experience in front of the camera while keeping her under wraps. That is what this scene does. It hides her. The next time we see Jennifer, she enters a red-walled, Playboy-esque club where Neely, Mel, Anne, and Lyon are all celebrating. She walks in with a halo of blonde hair in a dazzling snow white beaded gown. The V-neck sleeveless dress has alternating diagonal stripes of fringe beads that accentuate her movement when she walks. The alternating flat beaded stripes create a pool for the light to live in while she is still. Her hair is half up at the crown of her head where it is secured amongst a pile of teased volume. The rest of her golden blonde hair drapes over her shoulders and back. Her baby hairs are curled around where her ear meets her jawbone in an Elvis-inspired nod to excellent bone structure. Her eye makeup is her signature, and one does wonder if she dictated to the makeup artist or simply did it herself. She lines the creases of her lids like Garbo and layers on the mascara thick at her bottom and top lashes like Twiggy. Her lips are lined with the same brown pencil accentuating her lid crease and adorned with clear gloss or something very near to nude. Her cheeks glow warmly with bronzer that highlights her cheekbones. She is an absolute vision. As Jennifer walks into the club past Neely and her group, Neely says, Oh look, there goes Jennifer with one of her rich boyfriends. I bet a hundred beads pop off every time she moves. Anne says, oh, she is lovely. Less garish, but still missing the point. Jennifer sits with her much older date at a table that borders the stage floor. Tony Polar, lounge singer and all around handsome young man, comes out and sets his sights on Jennifer as he belts out a ballad called, Come Live With Me. Taken by Tony, but still trying to maintain composure for the sake of her date, Jennifer falls for him right there. This young man has to sing for his supper like she must keep company to eat. There is more between them than the beauty they both possess." The way Neely talks about Jennifer in this scene, like she is a circus animal and a lucky one to boot, is disgusting. Jennifer is constantly demeaned, but to suffer such slings and arrows from a fellow woman and friend is awful. In Neely's eyes, she has talent, which takes work to hone and deserves respect. Whereas Jennifer has looks. This somehow doesn't matter or doesn't require special effort. The general malice and unreasonable expectations put on Jennifer are in line with what Tate likely experienced in life. A pretty girl's curse that isn't as inconsequential as one might assume which we have clearly established through the photoplay article printed after Sharon Tate's death, in which she was directly blamed for her own murder because of her beauty. Neely is working for the patriarchy in this particular scene. Later in the film, Jennifer is sitting in a dingy screening room in France with her predatory director, Claude. She smokes a cigarette in the darkroom. Her hair is parted in the middle and pulled back at the nape of her neck. Her legs are crossed and she has a look of accomplishment and discomfort on her face. She looks businesslike in her high neck, peacock printed mini dress and mustard yellow single breasted suede jacket. There is none of the typical height and tease to her pulled back hair, just the two curls at her cheekbones and her signature garbo eye. She looks chic as an indication of age and experience. Unfortunately, experience is often gained through the exploitation and rape of women art film scenes roll across the screen in front of them. Jennifer's naked body is only covered by odd angles, fabric, or a man's body. The film ends with a still shot of the Eiffel tower as Jennifer stares out into the night. Fin is the indication that we are done watching her have sex on camera. As the lights go up, Jennifer turns to her director Claude and says, well, this is by far the best we've made. Claude responds by telling her there is an offer to buy her contract and distribute the film in the United States. She says, does that mean I get to go home? Claude hems and haws, enjoying the power he has over her. She says, I have hated this. You'll find yourself another girl. Tate's delivery of this line of dialogue is one of the most potently believable moments in the film. Claude still doesn't agree to sell Jennifer's contract. He says, yes, I will, a younger girl, a real actress. The look on Jennifer's face is one of shame and heartbreak. He makes her negotiate down to one third of the profits when she is entitled to half. She accepts and says, fine, I will do anything. Just let me go home. Claude jumps on the word anything and says they will talk about it later at the apartment. A close-up shot of Jennifer's face following Claude's comment reveals her fear and disgust at what lies ahead of her. Jennifer's public exploitation jumps to private and personal the moment it becomes clear that she is made to share an apartment with Claude. The look on her face after he suggests a private negotiation indicates an ongoing rape as part of the deal situation between the two. All of her hard-earned professional heirs disappear at that moment. He intentionally strips her of the dignity of being a paid professional. He makes her into a sexually exploited piece of property that is quite literally bought and sold through for and with sex. In other words, she performs and he cashes in physically and materially. It is a bit like the circus animal act Neely treated her as. One of the harshest moments in the scene is when Claude makes it clear that he can find a younger version of her, one that is a quote unquote, real actress, meaning one with talent, whose beauty doesn't have a rapidly approaching expiration date. The brutality of that statement's effect is visible on Jennifer's face from this point on. It is also a poignant depiction of how it feels to be told you're just pretty, but also not for long, This is a real sticking point in the 1960s. Men do everything in their power to dethrone women, to pull them down, and then we are supposed to see this easy access groping point as equality. That is unless, of course, you were born in New England and come from money, or in Neely's case, you come with a man's attitude to a man's world. In Jennifer's last scene, she discovers that she has breast cancer and needs to undergo a mastectomy. Jennifer sits up in her bed, explaining to Anne that her lump is malignant Anne sits at the literal edge of her seat wearing a white dress that makes her look suspiciously like a nurse. Jennifer looks glorious wearing a short yellow cotton bed coat with embroidered flowers at the bust Peter Pan collar and white lace trim. Her hair is pulled up halfway secured with a black ribbon at her crown and a teased out drape of elegance and beauty. Her hair falls and curls at her chest. Her eyes are graciously large and lined as usual, only this time with tears in them. The room is decorated in green and orange with a strange oblong headboard that resembles a pill behind Jennifer's head. Jennifer says, You know, it's funny. All I ever had is a body, and now I won't even have that. Anne responds, Oh, Jen, stop talking like that. Jennifer says, How am I going to keep Tony in the sanitarium? Anne's basic response is that her agent boyfriend, who cheats on her, will get Jennifer a job. Jennifer says, Anne, honey, let's face it, all I know how to do is take off my clothes. The phone rings, which Jennifer uses to shove off Anne. The call is from her mother. Jennifer cannot tell her mom what's happening and gets off the phone with her quickly. This scene makes it clear that Jennifer does feel like all she has is her beauty and even though it isn't talent, without it she literally has nothing. None of her friends offered to help her financially when she needed it. No one listened when she was so clearly was in pain. They let her suffer because they look past her as a result of her beauty. Jennifer gets up to look at herself in the mirror with a glass of water. She pulls out a pill bottle and takes a handful of red dolls. After swallowing the pills, she removes her bed coat, revealing a biopsy bandage on her left breast and a long brown sheer layered organza esque slip with white lace at the bust and delicate straps. She returns to the bed and lays down with large tears in her eyes. The color of her organza slip matches the darker parts of her hair, creating a soft focused effect on her face. Her lips are shiny and her cheeks look dewy as she waits for the pills to kill her. She cries to the sound of a remembered song her institutionalized husband used to sing to her. The interesting thing about the slip in this scene is its color. It's a brownish taupe. It is beautiful and very reflective of 1940s era slips in color. This was likely not a conscious choice, but for me, it makes her read as an icon on screen, especially in a death scene. The obvious choice would have been to put her in white or cream, or even a delicately childlike color like pink or blue. But choosing this earthy, alive shade of brown is sort of wild, and if you didn't own many 1940s slips or have an awareness of color trends of the 1930s and 40s, you wouldn't know that it's a throwback color, which is the entirety of the reason it reads like old Hollywood glamour. The design of the slip itself is very modern, and with the exception of the Art Deco detailing, the room is also very modern. Sharon, as a woman, represented the moment between classic Hollywood glamor and modernity in movies. Her image stands as the height of beauty. Yet there is an innocence, a childlike wonder that doesn't match to a Fonda or other women who embodied the 1970s version of star power. It's that innocence that makes her such an easy target after death. We can make her be whatever we want. Even during life, the pliability that was required of her in her career and her personal life made her easily transformed to suit the leading narrative. The biggest issue I have with this is not that it happened, which I am angry about, but that she is still dismissed as not being of value except as a murder victim. How the fuck would anyone know what her value was when the entire culture was so busy devaluing her down to the most obvious gift she had, her beauty? It's a double victimization to not give someone a chance and then to say she never did anything of value. She did what she was told and taught was of value. Regardless of the semantics of beauty and its place in the world of men, she was valuable to me. The lost innocence and confusion that seemed to dominate the last year of her life along with what I witnessed happen after her death, or rather what I heard about her as a child nearly 15 years after her death, would later prove to be very important information. I promised I wouldn't talk about the details of the crime here, and I won't, but I am going to talk about the impact of what happened to her specifically. I'm not speaking for all Manson family victims, just Sharon. She became the ultimate scapegoat initially. And even now, when she is for the most part seen as a true victim, that has become her entire memory. She either possessed all the agency or none of the agency. The way Roman spoke about her after the murders was like he was talking about a small child. There was one press conference where he said, quote, you didn't know how good she was, unquote. And then I'm paraphrasing now. She didn't drink, she didn't smoke, Etc. As an aside, she did smoke. The perfect victim, the illusion of a little girl snatched started with that interview. And who could blame him, at least for that? The thing that we don't talk about when speaking about the tragic loss of Sharon Tate is how it affected the landscape of female victims in America. I think witnessing this case play out in the press for decades had a huge impact on young girls. I know for me, who was born in 1985, her murder gave me some understanding of what a good versus bad victim was and how little control you would have over that. It also instilled a sense of shame and heavy responsibility around my appearance. What did I do to bring this on? What about me made this happen? are all questions I and other female victims of crime ask themselves or have literally been asked by others over and over again. I am not suggesting that victim blaming began with the Tate murders, but as the most notorious crime in Los Angeles history, I think it had an outsized effect on the awareness and understanding of what that looked like. And without being too over the top, I do think Sharon Tate has become a patron saint of wounded women. Another way Sharon's murder affected the American landscape that I should make note of is the process for parole. I want to state outright that I think this change is wildly problematic, but it is very significant and deserves discussion. Sharon's sister, Deborah Tate, along with their mother, spent years petitioning for victims' rights and laws that would allow family members into parole hearings. Over many decades, they have managed to change the process for parole in California. Victim statements are now part of the process of sentencing as well. This is a wild change from the letter of the law, which is supposed to be lacking emotion and definitely not taking into account the surviving family's feelings, their loss, yes, but not what they think the punishment should be. It seems to me to be the definition of bias. The welfare of society was supposed to be the main focus of sentencing. I do think there are advantages to the work Deborah Tate has done. It likely paved the way for the 1990s stalking laws in California. We were the first state to enact such a law. Giving victims a voice is a good thing, but keeping someone in prison too long is not. I'm thinking of Leslie Van Houten, one of the Manson girls present at the La Bianca murders. She has done amazing work with her fellow female prisoners and is truly a whole woman. She has been approved for parole several times, but will likely never be let out in large measure because of the surviving family members of all the victims, but specifically Deborah Tate. This is a largely political decision. The optics dictate the action, or in this case, the inaction that leads to the loss of another woman's life, this time behind bars. To end this week, I want to talk about a still image of Sharon one on her wedding day, where she is wearing the infamous taffeta mini wedding dress. I wanna talk about her on that day, the dress, her hair, and her makeup, because I think every styling choice reflects the fairy tale spirit she possessed. A wedding most certainly represents that in our culture, and regardless of her choice in husband, she embodied a mythic princess on this day. The dress is made of cream silk taffeta, which is a thick and very sculptural fabric. It was, as previously stated, a mini dress. The shoulders poofed and then tapered into a long mutton sleeve with delicate buttoning around the cuffs. The neck is high in an Edwardian revival way that was all the rage at the time. Think of brands like Young Edwardian. The neck has two rows of mini pom-pom piping. The waist is empire, which is right under the bust and is marked with the same pom-pom piping and a few pale pink rosettes. The heavy fabric itself gleams with the marks of fine taffeta. Taffeta has a kind of patterned texture that looks like the timeline of a tree's life. The whole thing feels like a fantastic storybook princess living in a wooded garden. Her hair is pulled back and done up in a large and long poof of smoothed curls with woven in daisies of pink and white. There are also ribbons tied into her hair. This is an important detail because it is reminiscent of the style of bouquet from the 1920s called spray bouquets, which were ultra romantic with flower buds hanging down from ribbons. This along with the Edwardian era dress design adds to the storybook aesthetic. Her face looks slim and frail with her hair pulled back. She has her eyes done as usual in the style of Greta Garbo, but with a glossier lid that looks like champagne dust was sprinkled on her. Unfortunately, the dress was sold at auction in 2018 at LA-based Julian's Auctions. The dress fetched $52,250. This is a common occurrence, the public sale of personal memorabilia, especially in Hollywood. I personally think there should be a public preservation house in Los Angeles for exactly this kind of thing. Some private estates do a great job of preservation, Elvis and Sinatra's come to mind. But for the most part, important pieces of American history and film history end up in private collection. It is a tragic loss of history and identity that we should all work to rectify. Sharon Tate was a glamorous and glorious woman who doesn't get the proper respect or reverence i think she and her image demand i love her dearly and find her role in culture before and after her death to be very impactful to me as an american woman next week on window dressing glamour girl next door mgm to playboy i will be discussing what came after the end of an era the 1970s. The sexual revolution had lost its vibrant hues and taken on a more realistic and bloodied bent. What better place to start than a call girl's one-room apartment, Brie Daniels, or more specifically, Jane Fonda, in the 1971 film, Clute. Please rate and subscribe to this podcast and follow me on Instagram at Podcast for bonus content and updates on upcoming episodes. I'm Madeline Jane Oble. Thanks for listening.